The Teach Middle East podcast is brought to you by Schoolfinder.ae. Schoolfinder.ae is a comprehensive schools directory serving the United Arab Emirates. Is your school a member? Go to Schoolfinder.ae to find out more. Now, enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teach Middle East podcast. It is indeed my pleasure to have you here with us. My name is Lisa Grace, and I am your host. Today, I have with me Soraya Beheshti from Crimson Education, and we're going to be talking all things education. We're going to be looking at what's changed. We're going to be looking at the trends, and we're going to try to predict what might come next for the world of education. So stick around and let's see where this conversation takes us today. You are listening to the Teach Middle East podcast, connecting, developing, and empowering educators. Hi, Soraya. Welcome. Hi, it's really nice to meet you. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you. So give us a little bit of intro so we become familiar with the person that we're going to be talking with today. Sure. So my name is Soraya. As you guys know, I grew up in the UAE. I was actually born here, went to school here. So pretty familiar with, you know, the education system here. I went to several international schools here and I actually ended up, you know, coming across Crimson in my final year of high school. So I went to Dubai College, but I actually left in my last year. I came across Crimson, had always dreamed of going to a top university in the US or the UK, but I didn't really know how to make it happen. None of my parents actually went to a a formal university and I never met anyone who went to an Ivy League or Oxford or Cambridge for that matter. So I came across Crimson. I, I had a good base. I was always good at school, but I don't think I was as competitive as I thought I was at the time. And uh, Crimson really helped me at the time to understand what I needed to do to become, uh, you know, a good candidate for the the kind of admissions goals I had. So I ended up getting a scholarship to Columbia University and had such an amazing experience that I decided to come back and open Crimson's first office in the region three years ago so that other students could have access to those same opportunities that I did. And Crimson itself is a company that was founded in 2013. We specialize in you know, personalized education. We uh, help students get into their dream universities, careers, we do tutoring, we build education software, we've actually launched an online high school as well, teaching A-levels and APs and all around, I guess, innovation in education. Brilliant. It's so good to hear that you're a a daughter of the soil, so to speak. I mean, we know we're all expatriates, but when you've gone to high school here, you feel like you're a native, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm I'm half Iranian, half New Zealander. So really know the region quite well. And I've seen Dubai change in, in so many ways. My parents came here in 82 when it was a very, very different city. I can imagine. What was it like going to school in Dubai? When I was a kid, before I moved to New Zealand, I was at Emirates International School, which is an IB school. I remember it being, you know, very international, but of course I was quite young. And then having gone to New Zealand, it's the opposite. I really enjoyed my time in New Zealand. You know, there's a lot of sport and a lot of nature, but it's not very international and it's not massively diverse place. So then I came back to high school in Dubai College and yeah, I just thought that the level of rigor was a lot higher and students were more ambitious than the students that I'd known in New Zealand. So I really appreciated that. But ultimately I left again and I went to a boarding school. So it's interesting 
I think one of the challenges of being a teenager here is that there's not a lot of things to do that you might do in another place. Like, you know, there's no high street, so to speak. So a lot of social life was, you know, hanging out at malls or in people's homes. And so I found that aspect a little bit challenging because I really like, you know, having access to lots and lots of museums and galleries and things. Our circle didn't exist at the time. A lot of the new developments like City Walk, places where you could walk outside, didn't exist. And so that was a challenge. Yeah. So you've come back to serve the region, obviously, in a whole other capacity, which is quite good because now you can look at it from another perspective. So you're no longer a student. Now you're coming back to work within the education sector, albeit in a complementary type of role to what is done in schools. But from your kind of experience, what are some of the top trends that you've noticed in education, even during this period where we're experiencing this pandemic time? Sure. I would say specific to the UAE, I think schools are taking a lot more notice of things outside the classroom, like your extracurriculars. There's a growing awareness of the importance of these things. So at Crimson, obviously, we specialize in, you know, uh, university admissions to places like Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Stanford. And these are all institutions which have always been trying to see what students are doing beyond just their grades. But I think in some schools, the focus was so intensely on the academics alone that a Mm. lot of those other areas were seen as nice bonuses or add-ons, but not really goals in themselves. And that's changing. I know when I was at school, there was emphasis on things like the Duke of Edinburgh, but beyond that, students couldn't easily start clubs and they couldn't start their own competitions and really think outside the box. The legal environment also didn't allow for that. Now, as of this year, students in the UAE can do internships at companies. Yeah. That's that's in the school system itself. In terms of university admissions, a lot of universities went test optional this year. So this changes the whole landscape. The fact that you don't have to submit your SATs or ACTs because of COVID. However, we've seen more students have applied to universities in the US since they've dropped this requirement. I I would caution against people just deciding not to do it because we've also seen that these top universities, say in the States, have admitted record low numbers of international students. So they've allowed those students to go test optional, but they are sort of unwilling to admit international students, particularly those doing local curricula, without seeing some kind of, you know, quantifiable measure of their success. Within the United States, this has actually been a really good move for increasing diversity within the campuses. So when schools go test optional, they see uh, higher enrollments, in some cases record high enrollments of students from um, different backgrounds within the U.S. For international students, it's the complete opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of quality control. If somebody's coming from across the world and you don't know what they can do because you don't understand their education system, you don't have in-depth knowledge of what they've covered in their school curriculum, it would be a bit of a gamble, wouldn't it, to sort of take them on into these prestigious institutions? Because obviously they've got a reputation to protect. And when that happens, if they miss the mark, their reputation is going to go down as well. So they've got to be really careful. Let's chat a little bit, though, about because our audience are teachers. So let's say our teachers now have to advise and they have to talk and counsel their students who are looking to matriculate to universities. With all the changes that's happening, what are some of the key things that they should focus on as teachers to help in guiding their students in making this step? 
Yeah, well, it definitely depends on where the student wants to go, first of all, because the US and the UK look for very, very different things in candidates. But let's take an example from the US. At Stanford, all applicants get rated against a quality called intellectual vitality. So these are things you do outside the classroom that demonstrate your interest in your academics beyond the things like beyond exams, for instance. So are you learning a coding language? Are you learning how to put together a car? Are you applying like things that you'll learn in the classroom to a, a kind of project that demonstrates that when you get to campus, you're going to be one of those kids who are staying extra time in the lab and you're really, really focused on learning for learning's sake, not because someone told you to. You're genuinely passionate and hungry to learn. Sorry, I like that. What is called education vitality? Intellectual vitality. Intellectual vitality. Yeah. Right. So Sorry. It could be like you self-study for a subject, but it like, you know, I heard from a Stanford former admissions officer, one of the most memorable applications he got was literally a kid who took apart an engine and like tried to put it back together and failed and failed and failed and failed and kept trying to put it back together to understand how this engine works. And that's the kind of student who is going to do really good things in um, their academic career. They're so motivated. They're, you know, genuinely interested and curious about how things work and and want to understand it. So that's like a very, you know, sort of American thing, I would say, when it comes to admissions. The UK, they're really interested in your supercurriculars. So it should be very focused on the subject you want to study. Your activity should be related to that. So it might be competitions in that field. It might be, you know, learning particular skills within that field, doing internships and that kind of thing. So I would say the best thing that teachers can do is to encourage students to explore things that are outside the classroom, but related to the subject. So if it's a mathematics teacher or a computer science teacher, maybe they're pointing students to resources where they can actually learn how to code or build their own app or get entrepreneurial skills, you know, that kind of thing, or getting the students involved in like, for instance, we run the Tiger Global Case Competition, which is the largest high school case competition in the world. And this is something that business studies teachers have asked students to enter as part of their coursework. They get to work on like a real world case. They get to learn skills like financial analysis and cash flow projections and so on. And it's a, a way to apply the theory that you're mm-hmm. learning in a real scenario. Yeah, that's actually good, because I think it leads me nicely on to my next question, which is really when you think about how you've gone through school and where you see universities are going and tertiary studies, what needs to change in education? What do you think needs to change? I've got a list as long as my arm, but what do you think? So do I. I think it needs to be much more personal. For one, uh, most schools operate based on uh, like age. So you're put in a grade based on the year that you were born rather than necessarily your ability, which kind of assumes that every student operates at a median level for every subject. And the reality is, yeah, you have some kid in year 10 and they might be a year 11 grade in maths and a year nine or eight grade in English. And uh, that should be how their class timetables are structured. It should be based on competency, not age, I think. And so education system really is for the median student. And who is the median student? It's not most kids. And uh, studies show that personalizing education leads to students performing on average two standard deviations higher. So I, I sometimes think 
what could the world be like? If we think about the sustainable development goals, for instance, how much further advanced would we be in them if every single student was performing to standard deviations higher? It could literally lead to improvement in the quality of life for like millions or even billions of people. That is so true. What else needs to change apart from personalization? I think that, you know, so we have our parent company, Crimson Education, has launched it on a school. And something that's really, I guess, part of the philosophy of our school is using kind of innovation and tech and all these wonderful things that we get to unlock education from the really traditional modes of doing things. So, you know, who says teachers should be teaching full time if they don't want to? Maybe they want to also have a foot in their industry and they want to just teach one or two classes a week. If we have like a sort of online or blended learning, then you can actually do that. You can allow teachers to teach part-time and teach remotely if they want to do that and, and sort of make it more attractive for teachers as well. And I think that schools, if they haven't already invested into updating pedagogical techniques to work in an online environment, then that will be crucial too, because I think it's blended learning at least is, is probably here to stay. Yeah, it's funny because you're you're saying blended learning is here to stay, but most schools were literally clamoring to go back full time, and mm-hmm. they literally have gone back full time as much mm-hmm. as possible with you know some smatterings of distance mm-hmm. learning thrown in there. But I do think the blended model should be enforced. I don't see the relevance of five days of school. Don't come at me, my fellow educators. But the truth is, (laughs) I don't think it's relevant anymore for people to be sitting in school for five days, for six, seven hours a day. You can't convince me that that is still a relevant way of delivering education. I know there are some cases, and I wonder about this sort of blended model for younger children, because they're the ones who suffered the most from the lack of interaction during the COVID pandemic and the lockdowns and the distance learning, is that the, the students who are quite young and who haven't developed those independent learning skills just doesn't have to be taught. I mean, basics must be taught. We can't kid ourselves. Kids aren't auto-programmed to learn how to do these things. They've got to be taught. But there's a certain age when we start to pull back and loosen the reins and allow students to have a level of autonomy and Mm -hmm. a level of control over their learning. And if we're going to do that, then we certainly don't need to have them sat in front of us for five full days every week. What do you think? Yeah, the youngest student one is a tough one. We don't accept youngest students right now for the same reason. I think it can be done, but it has to be. I mean, kids need unstructured play as well at that younger age. It shouldn't yes. all be about learning the content. They need to build, you know, creative skills. They should really be doing kinetic stuff like, you know, yeah. with their hands and so on. So it's trickier and maybe maybe that and learning will come and we'll we'll figure out, but Definitely with young adults. I actually think that it's hugely beneficial because I saw at university, for instance, a lot of kids were literally for the first time organizing their own time and they would be missing classes in the morning because they've never had that responsibility of having to wake up and put it in their own hands. So I think um, transitioning them into high school would make more sense. The other thing is that students may have other significant pursuits outside the class. So Good example is swimmers. If you have a competitive swimmer in high school, they wake up at like 4 a.m. to train before school and then after school. Or or maybe, for instance, we have entrepreneurs, students who want to be available during trading hours. 
And so having a more flexible model kind of makes sense. I mean, in the workforce that these students will graduate into, it probably will be flexible. I think the other thing is uh, like teenage boys are in some cases just not wired to be performant like that early in the morning. So if we have a little bit more flexibility in timetables, could we see more improvements in engagement for some of these groups of students? Not everyone, obviously, but some, maybe. I think having that option, and and that's where it is, because we're not going to say to everybody, no, you are not allowed to any longer have five days of school. What we're saying is put that option out there. You can either attend full-time five days face-to-face or you can do three days here or two days accordingly. Of course, I can see that as a massive logistical nightmare for schools to be able to coordinate all those pieces. But you know what? If they can get it right, it yeah. it, it is what the students will encounter when they leave school is that jobs will say, listen, we need you here for an extra two, three hours, but you can come in late tomorrow and that sort of thing. That's what they're going to encounter. Mm -hmm. Or they might be working across in another country and telecommuting or what do you call that, remote working now. So that's what's happening right now. And I think if we want our students to be ready, then we should start phasing some of that into school, right? Totally. I mean, I started Crimson UAE when I was still a student in New York. So I was working entirely remotely and it helped to be able to have those skills. I think also cost. I mean, a huge part of the cost that parents pay in a private school in Dubai is just it goes towards the the sort of facilities and the rent. And um, that's why so many parents were asking for fee adjustments this last school year, because they didn't actually get to use a lot of those facilities. Same with universities. So if you sort of have a blended model, you can potentially deliver the same quality of education a lot more efficiently at a lower cost to more students and have a bigger cohort, but keep the classes smaller. Yeah. So yeah, that's another thing. Small class sizes. I think that's super, super important. The online environment's cool because if you have the proper online classroom, then every student is equidistant from the center. You can't really hide in the back of the class, so to speak, but it does require some investment. So we built our own online classroom, but you know, like the pedagogical techniques that make a student thrive in the traditional classroom are not the same ones that make a student thrive in a virtual environment. So if if schools do want to consider blended learning, and maybe this is the reason why they were clamoring to get back to the physical environment, they really have to figure out how to make sure that teachers know how to deal with these kind of changes. Which is a big task to train Mm -hmm. teachers to get to that level where they can operate virtually as effectively as they would in person because the truth is it's certainly not the same skill set it requires a completely different skill set so think with me then what's changed because I know that we're back full-time face-to-face have you heard any smatterings or talkings about what's changed or are people just kind of gone back into what they used to be now that schools have opened up Well, everyone had a different experience. I know students who loved learning online, they performed better, they, you know, felt like it just suited them more. And then other students really did not enjoy that experience. So, you know, I think education innovation has certainly been a positive. Now I think schools are seeing that things can be done differently. Also companies, companies, I mean, people have been doing remote working for ages, but companies are now just 
understanding that it really actually can be done. But of course, I can't say the majority of students, especially if we're including students in other countries around the world, have been positively served by the sort of changes we've seen in COVID. Just because of what you said, you know, access to the internet is not equal for everyone. Access to technology is not the same for everyone. But, you know, at least the seed has been planted. And now, you know, our goal would be to make sure that the innovation is there. We have to make sure every student is getting to avail all these games that we've made. But a lot of students uh, who have never been interested in online learning are asking about online schooling. Like, I think, especially in that older age category, they just realize that, okay, well, maybe the family could have more uh, flexibility. They don't need to stay in Dubai. Uh, A lot of families in Dubai are based between here and somewhere else. So families are realizing that if they have like an online schooling option or a blended option, they can actually move around. I think teachers are realizing that they can actually move around and they don't have to be confined to the school holiday uh, calendar. So that's all good. And I think also students and schools are getting more creative with things like extracurriculars because now that everyone's really discovered that you can do pretty much everything online, students are thinking about virtual internships or they're creating you know, online projects and clubs and connecting with other students in other countries. Yeah. And I think also when it comes to students being able to see what the possibilities are, this kind of online learning has shown them that they actually don't need someone standing in front of them delivering content. You you know, they, they can learn this by themselves online by accessing the resources themselves. And and again, I'm talking about the older students. The younger students will need help and support and guidance. And in person, I think is the best way to go. But I think from the student is in secondary school and going upwards, that they are able to see that they can get the content that was being delivered by a person. They can get that from different sources online. Do you think students have become more disciplined and self sort of exercising their own agency? I think some have and certainly many have had to. But again, like lots of students have also had a bad experience with COVID and online learning. And so they kind of want to go back to the old model. It's different for everyone. Yeah, but certainly the, I mean, necessity breeds creativity. So maybe students are thinking about things that they haven't thought about before. They're feeling more confident, more independent because they've had to be. Yeah. But I I would love to flip this question actually back on you. I mean, you talked about how uh, a lot of content is available for students. Do you think that the role of the teacher will increasingly shift more towards being a sort of mentor, a personal sort of guidance or coach or, yeah, mentor would be the best word, an academic foundation? You know what I think? I think, yes, I think there will be a gradual evolution of such. Why? I think when they're younger, they'll have the teacher. But as Mm -hmm. soon as they start growing in age, I think that person should become more of a mentor and a coach and a guide and a facilitator. Yeah. Because what you're doing is you've got the reins when they're younger and you're holding it tight, right? Mm -hmm. And The older they become, you start to loosen the reins and start to walk alongside them in their path. Because I don't think that teachers should now be seen as the fountain of knowledge in terms of content. I do think they should be seen as the fountain of knowledge in terms of the experience and expertise Mm -hmm. 
to guide students in choosing and making right choices, right? Mm -hmm. So you're talking about as they get into maybe year nine or I don't know the American system, so I have to go to what I know, which is the British system. So when they get to year nine and they start really thinking about GCSEs or external examinations, etc., I think they need someone to guide them more into career choices, whether or not they're going to follow an entrepreneurial pathway, which is going to lead me to my final question, but they're an entrepreneurial pathway or whatever they choose, they need that guide. And I think teachers should increasingly become those guides and those facilitators. And listen, you do also need the teachers to help the students decipher what content is relevant and what isn't, because there is Mm -hmm. a plethora of content available and some of it is not even authentic. Some of it isn't true. So you're going to need that that guide. I think the teacher's role is going to become even more important. I think it's it's important. Now, obviously, they're giving, you know, they're teaching content and that sort of thing. But when it evolves into what it really should be, I think that's when it becomes pivotal because then the teacher will become more hybrid. They're going to help the students with how to take care of their own mental well-being as students. They're going to help the students how to make choices. They're going to help them how to decipher what's authentic or not. And they're going to also help to guide them into what their future might look like. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? And how to choose wisely. So, yeah, I think the role of teachers will evolve and become even more important. But what are your thoughts? I'm going to flip that right back. (laughs) I think that's I I totally agree with everything you said. I mean, you brought up this interesting point that there's actually a lot more information available. I mean, that that will just continue. Students have access to more information than any student has ever had in the past. And so the role of teaching the analytical skills and interpretive skills, how to actually understand, how to decipher right from wrong, how to understand truth, what is truth, can you arrive at truth? If so, those things, critical thinking skills will be even more important. And actually, that's kind of what we learn at university. Like, you know, people don't go to the Ivy Leagues, for instance, to learn the content. You can actually find Harvard's computer science course for free online. You go because You learn how to think, how to interpret knowledge, and you have these sort of discussion-based learning. Yes, there are lectures, but the main knowledge, I would say for me, the main knowledge production happened in discussions, in in that debate. So I am really excited to see that change. Yeah. So we're winding down to the end. It's getting to 30 minutes. But here's my question for you, kind of out of the box a bit. With universities, there are certain professions that will always need to go to university. So Mm -hmm. we're talking about your doctors, your lawyers, and all the technical engineers, etc. But how relevant do you think universities will remain going forward? So I know this debate has a lot of different dimensions. And I do appreciate the sort of entrepreneurs who say, you know, you don't have to go to college, you can learn everything, you can learn everything you need to know from this course or in the school of life. I think there's a place for that. And that's certainly helpful to hear for students who maybe don't have access to, you know, world-class universities. So I'm supportive of that. However, I also am a huge believer in the amazing 
kind of benefits of going to a world-class university. Again, not necessarily for the technical knowledge. You can read all the books that a professor writes and you don't have to pay the fees, but more for the experience. I think, you know, the, the college campuses are a whole package. It's like, you know, you go there and there's the network and then there's the professors who are the people who wrote the textbooks you're reading. And there's office hours and there's seminars and there's events. It's a whole ecosystem of learning. And I think I studied anthropology. So this is a degree that people will always tell you is useless, but I don't believe so. Yes, I'm not an ethnographer, but anthropology is the study of humans and human culture and human society. And that's part of every single thing we do. So I don't use my ethnographic skills, perhaps in my day to day job, although you could if you were a design thinker or if you're an entrepreneur or in marketing or something like that. But what I feel I learned at university was how to analyze truth. I mean, we touched on that before and how to have a critical mind, you know, critical in the academic nature of the, of the world, not, not just skeptical, but really how to deconstruct all the layers of thought and identity and everything that I think clouded maybe the way I used to see the world before. So yeah, but, but with the distance learning and universities changing their mode of delivery, that sort of ecosystem that you talk about on campus is fast fading. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, I think I agree in some cases, but I think that your like the sort of leaders in tertiary education are not going to change that much. They just haven't changed that much. And they're still resistant to online learning. They've kind of accepted it as a necessity of the situation we're in. But people are always going to want to go to campus if you're like a Harvard student or, you know, what have you. Even students who are not going to Harvard and Oxford and Cambridge. I know a lot of students in Dubai who just can't wait to get to that environment where they're in an ecosystem that's entirely focused around learning. It's such a special time, isn't it? Like your, your yeah. main full time job is just to absorb knowledge and all your friends are there to do the same thing. I think people will always want that. Yeah, I do agree. I mean, I did enjoy my university years. And obviously, I do wish my own boys will choose to go to university. But I have to tell you that as a parent, my perspective has changed considerably. First, I used to be like, oh, they definitely have to go to university. Why not? I mean, I've gone to university and done several degrees. They must, they must. But recently, I'm like, if they want to, they can go. And if they don't want to go, they don't have to go. As long as they remain productive members of society, mm -hmm. I will put no pressure at all on them because I know there's several pathways and they can choose any pathway they like as long as they choose a productive pathway. Yeah, so there there are definitely some changing views from, you know, very traditional people about the relevance and, and the way university delivers it. Because I remember friends of mine over the pandemic were quite disgruntled because the university's They insisted on collecting the full fees, yeah. but they were 100% online and people were annoyed at that fact. But again, once things are fully open and people are on campus, it's quite a special place for young people. They do grow and learn a lot there. Also, there are differences in the way university education is delivered. So I applied to both the US and the UK when I was in high school, but I eventually chose the US because, as you know, in the UK, you apply to a department. So you kind of already have to have that figured out before you go. 
And uh, I didn't know what anthropology was really in high school. So I think in the UK, I applied to something else. I don't remember what it was, but I didn't feel ready to commit myself to something like that. I took a gap year. I highly encourage that for a lot of students. If you want to take more time to understand yourself, the pressures of school are pretty immense. It doesn't give you much time for self-exploration. And then I went to the US because you have, you know, one or two years to actually try lots of classes, figure out what you enjoy and what sticks. So I think I thought I would major in economics and political science, tried one political science class and promptly realized that I wasn't that interested in how it was taught. And anthropology, on the other hand, I didn't plan to major in it, but I kept enjoying the classes. So I kept taking more and more and then I had a major. So I think that's like a nice middle ground. You go to a university, you have that experience and you're figuring things out and you're trying things and it's both structured and, and flexible. So, you know, I I thought that was awesome. I thought that was really good. And you have that core curriculum. So everyone has to do literature and humanities and quantitative subjects. And then you specialize. Thank you so much, Soraya. If people want to reach you, where can they reach you? I I guess we can put some some notes in comments or show notes or something. But how can people reach you if they want to learn more about your work and the work you do at Crimson? Oh, sure. So at Soraya.Beheshti, you're probably going to have to refer to the notes for the spelling on that one on uh, Instagram or Crimson Education underscore Mina, if you're in the Mina region or Crimson Education anywhere else on Instagram. And that'll probably be the best way to find me. You can also look up CrimsonEducation.org. And I was just going to say that our school, Crimson Global Academy, which is an international school, is always recruiting new teachers. So maybe your uh, teachers might be interested in visiting the, the website for Crimson Global Academy, too. And that's all online teaching. All online teaching. Yes. Flexible. <laughs> Flexible online teaching. Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Crimson Global Academy. Yeah. All right. We'll, we'll definitely point that out. Thank you so much, Soraya, for your time this afternoon. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for listening to the Teach Middle East podcast. Visit our website, teachmiddleeast.com, and follow us on social media. The links are in the show notes.